Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, history friends, patrons, all to another special anniversary episode. This one looking at my top 10 favorite historical figures from the last 10 years of podcasting. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you guys think and maybe also what your favorite historical figures from the last decade of history podcasting are. Now, as far as how we're going to do this, I should specify that when I say favourite, I don't mean that these people were the best or that they were even necessarily better than others. And you'll also notice that I said my favourite, as in these are the individuals that made the greatest impact on me over the last decade, whether by their achievements, their attributes, personalities, or all three and more. You know, you could actually view this as the list of 10 figures I'd most like to have over for dinner, but... Whether they'd actually coexist is, of course, another story. You should also note that the list includes people only that When Diplomacy Fails' coverage has actually included. So don't expect any appearances from figures outside of our back catalogue, in other words. And that shouldn't really be a surprise, because if I start talking about people that you've never really heard of, or I've never really talked about before... Yeah, that'll be a bit of a a cheat, so let's keep this fair. And remember, obviously, this is just for fun. So if a name appears here which you think doesn't belong here, then feel free to start a podcast explaining why this is the case, or better yet, start a post in our When Diplomacy Fails group complaining about who you think missed out on the top spot or any spot in this top ten In each figure, I'll be giving a bit of background as well as reminding you what episodes or series they appeared in, so you can track them down and reminisce if you wish. Among the questions I'll be asking of these figures as we progress is, what improvements or changes did they implement? What did they stand for? What did they fail at or succeed at? And just because they have a place here doesn't necessarily mean I approve of their actions. Instead, it's more likely I'll find them fascinating, hilarious, or just too historically significant to ignore. But what about you? If you had to single out 10, or in fairness, even just one historical figure from the last decade of When Diplomacy Fails, who would you choose? Well, ponder these questions as we begin with some honourable mentions, and yes, this list is in order. But as you'll see, arguing for one or the other came down to my gut feeling 
which is grand because this is my podcast, so my guts are what matters. Anyway, honourable mentions. So, first of all, we have Harold Nicholson, who wrote an awful lot of stuff. Basically, he was a contemporary of the Versailles Peace Conference, and he was also alive during the Second World War, so his diaries during that time as a prolific member of the British Foreign Office really give us a window into that time period and are really, really useful, and his voice, as a consequence, has survived through the decades. Another figure who deserves a shout-out is Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish Chancellor. Essentially, during the first 50 years of the 17th century, but most importantly for us, during the Thirty Years' War. He essentially led Sweden during its really high, wonderful points of success, and also its dark days when the King of Sweden died, and he was forced to take over a regency, and it was a bit rocky, but he made it through in the end. Other honourable mentions? Well, Maurice of Nassau, for his improvements in military technology and tactics, essentially inventing the musket drill, which would soon become the norm, and then spreading news and details of how to do this musket drill with detailed animated drill manuals. Also deserving of mention is his half-brother Frederick Henry, who succeeded him and essentially led the Dutch Republic during the second phase of the Thirty Years' War, from 1625 to 1647. So both those figures in their own right deserve a lot of plaudits, and that's really what I'm giving them here, but I feel like they just don't quite do enough to reach into the top ten, and maybe you'll disagree with that, but... That's enough of that, enough of those losers who didn't make the top 10 and couldn't cut it with all the elite in the last 10 years of podcasting. Let's see who they were, let's see who made the cut, as you all sit on the edge of your seat, of course, eagerly waiting to hear what I have to say. Ha. Anyway, let's begin. So, number 10, Frederick V, the Elector Palatine seen in our Thirty Years' War series. Without Frederick, there would be no Thirty Years' War. As the Elector Palatine and scion of the prestigious Wittelsbach dynasty, Frederick probably felt pretty good about himself when he married Princess Elizabeth in 1613, thus making King James I and VI his father-in-law. In his own right, Frederick was second only to the Holy Roman Emperor in the Empire, at least according to tradition, and thanks to his father's example, Frederick boasted leadership of the Evangelical Union of German Princes and Potentates. This league proved more powerful on paper than in reality, which is kind of the story of Frederick's life really, but even so, Frederick's connections and position spoke for themselves. What Frederick perhaps failed to realise, and again, this is a common theme in his life, was that what was on paper and what was actually possible were two different things. So just because his uncle, through his wife, happened to be the King of Denmark, just because his connections to the Dutch House of Orange were also strong, and just because the Bohemians sought to take advantage of all this by offering their crown to him in summer 1619, well, this didn't mean his allies were willing to, or able to, fight his battles. This Frederick learned too late. And despite some initial successes, Frederick and Elizabeth were chased out of Prague into their Dutch exile, where they would remain until the Thirty Years' War moved on. You might wonder why I have this failure of a person in the top ten spot. Maybe I feel sorry for him, not just for being let down by so many of his allies who promised so much, but gave so little. 
Maybe I admire his restraint and moderation towards his own subjects at a time when extremism was never far away. Maybe I want to salute his bravery and optimism for taking on the might of the Habsburgs, well, and expecting to win. It's a combination of these things, but I also find Frederick a fascinating character. His dilemma of will he, won't he for the Bohemian crown was really quite compelling, and the optimistic vision he had for seizing the Bohemian vote and paving the way for a Protestant, Holy Roman Emperor was also quite enthralling. Like many characters, though, it's their tumble into the abyss and how they cope with it that also raises my interest. The fact that Frederick was soundly defeated every time he tried to challenge the Habsburgs, yet he never gave up, and lived to see the situation reversed by the sheer tenacity of constantly buzzing in Emperor Ferdinand's ear for a whole decade, yeah, that's what grants this man the position of my 10th favourite historical figure of the last decade. Number 9. Jan Sobieski, the King of Poland, seen in our Long War series and in his own Patreon biography series. Jan Sobieski was the King of Poland from 1674 to 1696, that's what the record says. What the record also says is that Sobieski was Poland's last great king. He was the last figure to be militarily, politically and socially skilled enough to rally the flailing institutions of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to his side. He was the last Polish king to implement a truly independent, forceful, formidable foreign policy aimed at returning East Prussia, for one instance, to the Commonwealth's orbit, pushing the Turks out and enhancing the central royal authority of Polish kings. He was the last king of Poland to really lead Poles to victory, whether it was against the Turks or, well, actually he pretty much fought the Turks his whole life. It was a tradition set by his father, who had led Polish armies and fought the Ottomans during their invasions of the Commonwealth all the way back in the 1620s. By the time of Sobieski's reign, Poland's greatest adversary was still the Ottoman Turks, even though the Swedish foe had inflicted the gravest defeats upon her. It may be tempting to see Jan Sobieski as a one-trick pony, the guy who appeared at just the right time outside the Siege of Vienna in 1683, especially if one doesn't know any better about him. This is something we explored in more detail in our Sobieski biography series on Patreon, which you can listen to for just a fiver a month, wink wink nudge nudge, but as we saw there, Sobieski was so much more than his heroic performance during the Siege of Vienna. In fact, much of his career, both before being crowned king and after, was characterised by great bursts of bravery and genius like these. Only a decade before, in 1673, Sobieski had rampaged through an Ottoman camp, stunning the soldiers inside and saving his country from another season of campaigning. When Sobieski came to the throne in 1674, Poland was technically a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, following years of depressing civil war and suffering from the turmoil after the Swedish deluges of the 1650s. Those Swedish invasions had ripped out Poland's heart, and the opportunistic Turks sought to lop off the remaining body parts and stake their claim to Commonwealth land while they could. Sobieski rallied against these setbacks and was largely elected because of his triumphs in battle, most notably the aforementioned victory against the Turkish camp in November 1673 in the Battle of Cochin. Believing in his countrymen's capacity to reverse Poland's downward trend, Sobieski beat the Turks back 
and then held out the offer of friendship to the Habsburgs once the Ottomans renewed their conflict with Vienna in spring 1683. This was a timely partnership. The Austrians were forced to knuckle down and prepare themselves for a truly devastating Turkish invasion, the likes of which had not been seen since the 1590s. Sobieski, alongside Charles of Lorraine, led the Allied forces to victory, cementing his legend and proving to the world that Poland was not lost yet. In the long run, though, the Holy League, which also boasted Venice, Russia and Austria, and kept the pressure on against the Turks for the next decade or so, was not very beneficial to Poland. The Turks were ejected from Commonwealth lands, but upon his death in 1696, Sobieski's heir faced the same problems as before. The treasury was empty, the lands were desolate, the Commonwealth's population yearned for peace, and the magnates, oh dear, were increasingly feathering their own nests rather than concerning themselves with the fate of their country. Within two decades after Sobieski's death, the Commonwealth's position would have deteriorated still further after a disastrous war with, yep, Sweden, and the leadership of a Saxon king who cared more for his electorate than his new Polish crown. Since Sobieski ultimately failed to reverse the Commonwealth's downward trend, you may wonder why he managed to nab the number 9 spot as my ninth favourite historical character of the last 10 years. Simply put though, Sobieski's defiance against these harrowing odds, the more I learned of his passionate stance against capitulation, and of his proto-Polish nationalism, the more I liked The only thing he loved more than Poland was his wife, Marie, and although he couldn't save Poland, he did leave behind an example for Polish citizens that proves potent to this day. The spectacle and legend of his stand outside Vienna, with those winged hussars charging in, may be the most famous highlight, but even greater rewards can be found by delving into his character and life, and exploring what it was that made this ambitious, dynamic, powerful man into Poland's last great king. He was a bright Polish light at a time when the Commonwealth was fading, and for this reason, among others, Sobieski gallops his way into my ninth favourite historical figure of the last decade. Number 8. Georges Clemenceau, Premier of France, seen in our Versailles Anniversary Project series. Invariably pegged as the resentful, foolhardy, monopoly man who ticked off the Germans enough to pull a Hitler, Georges Clemenceau enjoyed an eventful, principled political career well before settling into quasi-retirement in 1910. He tended to his garden, established a newspaper, and genuinely seemed capable of sailing off into the sunset after a moderately successful four-year stint as Premier of France from 1905 to 1909. Then, the First World War happened, and Clemenceau became a more supercharged version of himself. Following several crises in confidence, command and organisation, by November 1917 the French government was in a downward spiral, and they urged one of their harshest critics to just suck it up, form a government, and lead France to victory. It was a big ask, but through sheer force of personality and an incredible talent of inspiring confidence in others, Clemenceau gradually turned the tide. He harshly punished domestic enemies of France, while also relaxing newspaper censorship and making regular trips to the front line. After a few months in office, the German spring offensive began, but Clemenceau's efforts had undoubtedly made a difference in the French army. French discipline and morale held, contrary to the worst expectations of the French generals, who had every reason to expect a repeat of the previous moral collapse. 
Anglo-French resistance held out just long enough for the stormtroopers to run out of steam, and once the Americans arrived, a German defeat was only a matter of time. That time came when back-channel communications brought the Germans and French together to talk terms, which were soon hammered out in an armistice that came into effect on the 11th of November, 1918. The war was won, but winning the peace would prove an altogether new challenge for the French Premier. Clemenceau fits perfectly into the Treaty of Versailles myth, which I took some pleasure in ripping apart during my series on it. For the myth to work, you need the vengeful Frenchman, who serves his role as the tragic figure doomed by his thirst for revenge. Such revenge was both incredibly short-sighted and wholly unnecessary, we are told. By his insistence on punishing Germany with the harshest possible terms, Clemenceau guaranteed a repeat of the war a generation later. Thus, we are condemned to shudder at the words of Marshal Ferdinand Foch, who famously lamented that the Treaty of Versailles was not a peace, but an armistice for 20 years. As we learned in our Versailles anniversary project, though, Clemenceau's story was much more complex than this, and his role in fostering the calamities that followed have been greatly exaggerated. Above all, Clemenceau wanted to save France from a rerun of this horrendous war. He wanted to protect the French people and French state from that experience, and he knew that to do so, France's main antagonist would have to be sufficiently punished, so that it would be sufficiently weakened not to challenge France in such a way again. Perhaps understandably, after fighting them for four years, Clemenceau was among those that believed Germany was far too powerful, and that to guarantee European security, she should be partitioned. Germany, after all, was only a relatively new phenomenon. Would a pre-1871 world not be better for everyone? Clemenceau did backtrack, of course, settling in the end for a demilitarised Rhineland and guarantees from the Allies to come to France's aid. In addition, there was the promise of German reparations, which were sorely needed to repair the areas of France that had been utterly destroyed and ruined by the occupying and then retreating German troops. As the enemy retreated from French land that they had occupied for, in some cases, the duration of the war, Clemenceau lamented that the country's richest industrial regions were almost unusable. If Germany could not be made to grant this compensation, French recovery would take generations. Clemenceau's position was neither unusually harsh nor unusual in itself. Clemenceau had been 29 years old when German soldiers marched through Paris in 1871. He had been outraged at Bismarck's punishing peace treaty, just as the Allies protested when Germany inflicted the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk onto the Russians in March 1918. But this was the way that the world worked, particularly when there was no guarantee that the Americans would be on standby in the future. Another fact, often lost in the Second World War, is that Clemenceau was right. He was right to be fearful of a vengeful German spirit, The mistake we often make is of blaming Clemenceau and others for fostering that vengeful spirit. The real grievance the Germans came to possess was the idea of defeat itself. The stabbed in the back mythos was far more potent in the end than the idea of an unfair peace treaty, though in truth all of these grievances were mixed together into the Nazi melting pot, which they then set cynically to boil over. Something which the Versailles Anniversary Project has hopefully proved is that we need to rethink the entire Paris Peace Conference and period following the Treaty of Versailles. The interwar period is one which many think they know so well, with the doom of the Nazis hanging over Europe. But the truth is more complicated. 
Several decisions were made in this period which went directly against the Treaty of Versailles Accords. When Wilson failed to pass the Treaty of Versailles in Congress, any question of American support vanished still further into the distance. And when the British refused to fully support the French during their occupation of the Ruhr, in response to Germany failing to pay its scheduled reparations, it became even more apparent that France was on its own. This state of affairs had set in by 1925, the same year when French and Belgian soldiers returned home from their occupation of the Ruhr. Gustav Streisemann's stint as Chancellor of the Weimar Republic did see Franco-German relations improve, but Clemenceau lived long enough to experience the year of disaster that was 1929, the same year of the Wall Street crash and of Streisemann's death. Clemenceau died shortly after, perhaps unaware of the implications of these events, but surely anxious that the safeguards which that decade-old Treaty of Versailles had set in place had since largely lapsed. So what makes Georges Clemenceau worthy of position number eight? Well, if you know me, you'll know I have a certain sympathy for characters unjustly maligned by history. One thing we know for sure is that World War II wasn't the fault of France, and if it wasn't France's fault, then it wasn't Clemenceau's fault either. There's something about Clemmy that I feel we really missed out on. It's so easy for Anglophone audiences to put him in a German-hating, snooty Frenchman box when he was none of these things. Clemenceau would sooner be speaking fluent English to you while seated on his English furniture. He was intelligent, quick-witted, and generous in conversation. I suspect that he died a somewhat broken-hearted man, keenly aware that, despite his best efforts, his former allies refused to heed his warnings. It's a particularly relevant lesson for us to learn. It also helps to note that Clemenceau was much more than his nine-month appearance in the Paris Peace Conference. He was a towering French statesman and a real patriot, and he deserves better, like so many from this era whose names have been blackened. Wilson and Lloyd George can shove it, though. <clears throat> so, for getting an undeserved black legend, for having his life's work reduced to a few lines in a history school textbook, and for being so much better than we gave him credit for, Georges Clemenceau moustache twirls his way into the position of my eighth favourite historical figure of the last decade. Number 7. Albrecht von Wallenstein, Duke of Friedland and Mecklenburg, Generalissimo of the Holy Roman Emperor, seen in our Thirty Years' War series. I don't know what it is, but there's just something about self-made men. You do hear many stories of men that made use of opportunity and their skills to create a fortune and an incredible career for themselves. However, you rarely hear about these self-made men being swallowed up by those they brought with them to new heights of greatness. That, essentially, was Wallenstein's relationship to the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II. Ferdinand, to be sure, granted Wallenstein his big break, employing him as his generalissimo at a time when Habsburg fortunes were in grave danger and the Emperor was in need of his own personal army. Wallenstein was perfect because he would pay and supply his troops from his own healthy accounts, bolstered by the fire sale of lands that followed the Bohemian Revolt and from the lands that the Emperor subsequently awarded him. The Emperor would have to pay no one, at least not right away, and in return the Habsburg dynasty would boast its own army, allied to, but distinctly separate from, that of Maximilian of Bavaria's Catholic League army. 
by such an arrangement, Ferdinand and Wallenstein rewrote the rulebook of how Holy Roman Emperors were supposed to act. Emperors had not been strong on the battlefield and in possession of an army since, arguably, Charles V, and that was only because Charles V had the fortune to also be King of Spain and Lord of the New World. Habsburg Holy Roman Emperors, before then and since, tended to rely on their vassals, the other German states that made up the empire. Wallenstein reversed this trend, granting Ferdinand levels of freedom, independence and power Ferdinand's ancestors would surely have deeply envied. This meant that even while the Peace of Westphalia technically loosened the cohesion of the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Emperor himself became more militarily powerful in his own lands and outside of them. Once empowered by a Wallenstein, Ferdinand and his successors found that they couldn't do without an army of their own ever again, and Austria developed what would become a standing army, just in time to meet the challenge posed by Louis XIV. Perhaps, once Wallenstein achieved several victories on the battlefield and when he realised that Ferdinand wasn't particularly good at paying him back, Wallenstein changed his approach and requested lands and titles from his grateful emperor in response. In the late 1620s especially, Wallenstein received enormous gifts, making him one of the largest landowners in the whole empire. Ambition was one thing, but for this Czech upstart to come from nowhere and accumulate more lands and titles than other German houses and electors a millennia old was bound to rub people the wrong way. As did the fact that Wallenstein's most valuable instrument, his army, was eye-wateringly expensive and predictably difficult to supply without offending those who were forced to enjoy the army's company. After saving the emperor's bacon and guaranteeing the defeat of the Danes, Wallenstein may have believed that he was safe. He may also have believed that without him, the Habsburg defence, not only of its frontiers but of its diplomatic interests, would falter. At the same time, we find Wallenstein eager for a break by 1629, when the peace between emperor and Danish king was officially signed. He got his wish shortly, with Denmark defeated and absolutely no other threat in the Baltic destined to sail over and wreck his day. Emperor Ferdinand seems to have believed that sacrificing Wallenstein would be worth it, in return for a guarantee that Ferdinand's son would succeed him as emperor. By summer 1630, Wallenstein was given his marching orders, and he could not have been happier to be freed from the net, as he put it. No doubt, he intended to repair and rebuild his finances, invest in his new duchies along the Baltic coast, and settle into a favourable retirement. There was also the small matter of the large sums of money that Ferdinand still owed him from years before, which would have come in handy and would have been a nice retirement present. But no, Ferdinand waved his greatest servant away, just in time for the famous collapse of the Habsburg position at the hands of the Swedish king. Wallenstein watched as his own lands came under attack, and the former Dukes of Mecklenburg and Friedland gleefully returned to their rightful places, removing Wallenstein in the process. Gustavus Adolphus's deluge seemingly drowned Habsburg influence in a single campaign, when Count Tilly was defeated for the first time at Breitenfeld in September 1631. Now that Maximilian's Catholic League army had been defeated, and Count Tilly died soon after, The emperor's weaknesses were highlighted for the whole empire to see. The only choice was to recall Wallenstein and hope that he could pull the disparate threads of imperial defence together again. Even Maximilian of Bavaria was willing to admit that his rival was needed now. 
Wallenstein received the news with a mixture of smugness, dread, and grim determination. Only he was in a position to defeat the Swedish-German army and reverse the losses that had so threatened his position. The best that Wallenstein could manage was a bloody draw at Lützen in November 1632, after a campaigning season of wearing Gustavus down. More important than Wallenstein's impressive stand against superior numbers, though, was that battle's greatest casualty, the Swedish king himself. The Swedish-German camp became anxious, and Swedish Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna had to travel to meet the army and restore confidence, eventually being forced to promise them their wages after months of unsteady or absent pay. But the shine had worn off the Swedish army, at least for now. The Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburgs pooled their resources in 1633, with the intention of launching a great campaign in 1634 that would capitalise on Gustavus's absence. In the meantime, we find Wallenstein scheming, but also behaving oddly. Despite the technical stalemate in the war, Wallenstein's fortunes had not improved, and he had become desperate. Perhaps because of this, rumours about his intention to bring his army to Saxony's side were easier to believe. It is difficult to imagine Wallenstein doing this, though playing politics had never been his strong suit. Either way, reports returned to Emperor Ferdinand, and with little concern for how much Wallenstein had done for him, or how critically important the Czech Generalissimo had been in the empowerment of the Habsburg dynasty, or really, without any effort to investigate the truth behind these rumours, Ferdinand ordered his old ally assassinated. But what is it about Wallenstein that affords him the boast of my seventh favourite historical figure of the last decade? Well, if I'm honest, he does have that self-made man thing going for him. Any examination of his biography reveals his intention to marry a significantly older woman in his early years, who then passed him a great fortune when she died. So maybe this self-made thing is a little bit exaggerated, but... Above all, Wallenstein's fortunes were made when the Bohemian Revolt first pushed him from his home and then called him to return when the rebels swung from the gallows and their lands were sold off by a cash-hungry Habsburg regime. He was a pivotally important figure not just in the Thirty Years' War but in the development of the Habsburg dynasty and the creation of the Austrian Empire. It was the army which Wallenstein brought to life that became one of the more enduring aspects of Vienna's tenure as a great power. His legacy is undeniable, but his skills were observed by contemporaries, however reluctantly. He was capable enough in command to pose a fatal challenge to Gustavus, after frustrating him in battle for many months before Lutzen. He was ambitious and certainly greedy, but he wasn't an extremist or fundamentalist. He opposed Emperor Ferdinand's 1629 Edict of Restitution on religious, moral and practical grounds. He was also not tyrannical, seeking power for its own sake, but as a means to an end. He really would have been content to spend his days as a landowner. Granted, Wallenstein had no scruples about fighting for such a tyrannical emperor, or for installing his unpopular, occasionally brutal garrisons to maintain his position. It's hard to imagine how Wallenstein would have seen himself, but certainly I see him as a complex character who granted the Habsburgs an incredible legacy, without which history would have been very different. For these reasons, Wallenstein loans his way into his place as my seventh favourite historical figure of the last decade of podcasting. Number six, Louis XIV, King of France and the longest reigning monarch in history to date. 
seen in our Thirty Years' War, First Anglo-Dutch War, Second Anglo-Dutch War, Swedish Deluges, Franco-Dutch War and Long War series, among others. When Louis XIV was born in 1638, France was in the midst of a bitter war with the Habsburgs. Surrounded on all sides and threatened regularly by invasion, the news that King Louis XIII had been blessed with a boy must have been of some relief. Whatever was to befall France, at least the Bourbon dynasty would remain intact and could lead France into the future. These sentiments were under threat when Louis XIII died only five years later, plunging France into a regency while engaged in such a costly war. Louis XIV's childhood was thus consumed by war, being born into this Franco-Spanish conflict, which only ended with the Peace of the Pyrenees in 1659. By then, Louis XIV had already been crowned King of France, and as a 21-year-old monarch ruling such an up-and-coming kingdom, his contemporaries surely expected great things from him. How would France react, now that its dynastic power base was restored, the religious question settled, and its traditional rivals were weakened? Few could have imagined what would follow was a reign lasting another 55 years, which would include five wars and leave France transformed if not also crippled by debt and war weariness. His great-grandson, Louis XV, was given a bittersweet inheritance, but the towering figure of the Sun King was still undeniable and visible not merely in the gleaming new palace at Versailles. Louis XIV could not have known that he would be the longest reigning monarch to date, but he didn't wait long to set the tone for his reign. By 1667, the first war with Spain had begun, and French forces gobbled up fortress after fortress in the Spanish Netherlands. As their Dutch ally looked on, it seemed possible that Brussels would fall to Louis, and that the Netherlands would be partitioned between Paris and The Hague. To Spain's rescue came not a European coalition, but the Dutch themselves, who were anxious about the prospect of a land border between their republic and this young expansionist French king. Louis XIV may have smiled politely at the news that his great triumph had been contained by what were supposed to be his closest allies and friends, but in reality, he planned revenge in a scheme that exploded with dramatic effect five years later. The Franco-Dutch War of 1672 was, in fact, Louis's first coalition war and continued for six long years. By the peace of 1678, Europe looked at France very differently. She was no longer the up-and-coming power, but the menace to the peace, in the same vein as Austria or Spain had been in the Thirty Years' War. The narrative of the universal monarch seeking to conquer all found traction in Britain especially, and a new phase of Anglo-French competition dawned on the horizon. Too impatient to wait for these historical trends to sort themselves out, William of Orange, stadtholder of several Dutch provinces and de facto leader of the Dutch Republic, invaded England in 1688. In the process, he deposed the Catholic, sympathiser and pro-French king, James II, and provoked an instant declaration of war from Louis XIV. Louis's next coalition war had begun, and it was to take his armies all over the world, from Ireland to North America, as the struggle for supremacy in Europe and the struggle for British succession raged on. In the midst of their war, new legends were created in Ulster, and the war ended with William and Mary's regime secure, but the peace could not last. The terribly disabled Spanish king Charles II died with no heirs, and the War of the Spanish Succession began in 1701. This long conflict 
was Louis' final European contest, and it was arguably his most punishing. France was saved from disaster only by the ring of fortresses that guarded its borders, the so-called Fence of Iron, built by master military engineer Vauban. Louis endured, and even managed to install his grandson on the Spanish throne, where the Bourbon dynasty remained to this day, but Louis's final years were less blissful. As if God had reached down to punish the Sun King, Louis's family died all around him in rapid succession, until the sole survivor was a great-grandson five years old, who was ill with measles. When Louis XIV died in September 1715, he left behind an exhausted kingdom desperate for peace, yet unable to ignore their wanton king's legacy. For better or for worse, France was now atop the European food chain, and only Britain could match her economic and military might. Spain had been definitively eclipsed, Austria had been repelled, and Paris had gone from a divided, tumultuous city to the capital of a united, centralised empire. Louis' efforts, it's fair to say, established France as the dominant continental power until arguably 1871. Because of this, it's difficult to deny his importance, even if we may question his morals and methods. Something else we have to understand about Louis, though, was his own ideology. The absolute rule of divinely ordained kings was not a new concept, but Louis took it to the next level. His honour, glory and reputation were sacred and absolutely worth fighting for. Of course, Louis was fortunate to have some incredibly talented men under him, which made all this fighting easier. Vauban deserves mention again as Louis' engineer extraordinaire, fortifying France's borders and protecting it from the kind of emergencies that characterised the late 1630s when the Spanish invaded from the Netherlands. Jean-Baptiste Colbert was another critically important figure, responsible for French finances, its industry and its navy. He was joined by François-Michel Letellier, Marquis of Louvois, who was Secretary for War for 30 years and reinvented the French army's tactics and organisation. It was Louvois who prepared for the wars, ensured the supplies were in place and strategically planned each new siege. It was Colbert that paid for them and it was Vauban that built the fortresses which aided French defence of the region thereafter. This triumvirate was a boon to Louis' fortunes and reminded us that behind every Sun King is a loyal servant, ready and willing to put his expertise to the test. I must confess to coming under Louis XIV's spell somewhat. His very longevity as king at the centre of Europe singles him out in my memory. My rose-tinted glasses do allow for some criticism, of course. Louis was aggressive, proud, and often reckless. His insistence on persecuting the remaining French Huguenots, even though by this stage they posed no threat at all to the French crown, led to a series of events which saw a mass exodus and then resettlement of these exiled citizens, often in Ireland. Greystones County Wicklow boasts its own Latouche family, who built the first bank in the area and lend their name to the road and former hotel, which is now a protected building. Before I moved from Greystones, I used to pass by these things every day, a constant reminder of how Louis XIV's actions reached all the way to the present day. But what grants Louis the position as my sixth favourite historical figure of the last decade? It certainly isn't for his kindness, generosity or sensitivity. It wasn't for his diplomatic acumen, though his scheming with Charles II to bring about the Franco-Dutch War reads like a Shakespearean tragedy. Instead, Louis earns his place purely for the mark he made in When Diplomacy Fails' back catalogue, 
and the impact he had on 17th century Europe. This is really a case of me having to tip my cap to the guy, while acknowledging that living through his five wars would have been horrendous. He has created some really memorable moments, and I look forward to resuming his story in the future and giving him a proper send-off. For all these reasons, Louis XIV, I am the state's his way into the position of my sixth favourite historical figure of the last decade of history podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Number 5. William of Orange, Stadtholder of Holland and Zealand, de facto leader of the Dutch Republic, seen in our Franco-Dutch War and Long War series, among others. William was born just a week after his father's death in 1650, and there was little indication of the life and impact he would go on to have. To begin with, his father had been a domineering figure, with visions of a centralised Dutch Republic under the House of Orange's direct control. A vision opposed by the regents and merchants in the Dutch Republic, who wished to reduce the size of the Republic's army and navy following the peace with Spain. Perhaps the only thing that stopped the Dutch descending into civil war was William II's death from smallpox. Without hesitation, the regent party worked to sideline the House of Orange, taking advantage of the infant William's lack of power and ushering the first Stadtholderless period, or era of true freedoms, in. In typically Dutch fashion, these high-minded labels were less accurate than contemporaries hoped. Within a few years, the Dutch had soundly lost a war to Cromwell's Britain. And in the midst of this depression, Johan de Witt stepped up to the plate. For the next two decades, de Witt would rule the Republic as its de facto Prime Minister. And meanwhile, William III grew up came of age just in time to see an Anglo-French alliance ravage his homeland. But rather than submit to the tempting offers of vassalage, which would have placed him in a privileged position and the Dutch Republic under the control of the British and French, William fought on, and though his armies had few successes, the pressure forced the British and gradually the French to the peace table. The Dutch Republic was saved, but didn't wait long to thank its new stadtholder. With the Orange Party in the Ascendant, 
William could focus on his next campaign against the French enemy, and he found it in an unlikely area, Britain's succession. The removal of James II forced Louis XIV to respond, and the aforementioned Nine Years' War, or War of the League of Augsburg, began in 1688. Significantly, this was the first time the British had made war on France with such vigour since Henry VIII's reign in the 1500s. The following year, William had an out-of-body experience as a campaign in Ulster established a new organisation dedicated to his family's legend, the Orange Order. As if that wasn't impactful enough on where I live in Ireland, in 1695 William authorised the Penal Laws, which was Britain's answer to Louis XIV's Edict of Fontainebleau. Just as Huguenots scattered across Europe, now it was the turn of Catholics across the British Isles, but especially Ireland, to leave their homes. Some made the trip to the New World, others served in Habsburger French armies. It would be easy for me, very easy indeed, to curse the very ground that William of Orange walked on for committing these sins, but I don't blame him for these acts. I see them instead as new theatres in his war with Louis XIV, his main rival and antagonist. Now King of England and Stadtholder of the Dutch Republic, William held this Anglo-Dutch union together until his death in 1702. By then, Britain had definitively surpassed its Dutch rival and was on its way to carve out a new niche in the 18th century. This niche was, of course, fighting against the French. Despite myself, I cannot deny William of Orange's pivotal role in European history, even while I disdain his impact on Irish history. Arguably to this day, this island remains defined to some extent by the religious divide, and whether we can blame King Billy for these things matters less than the man's incredible career of resistance and triumph against his French foe. Each man was shaped by the opposition and daring of the other, and this personal antagonism between Louis XIV and William of Orange is what I look forward to covering in future episodes and books. So what entitles William of Orange to the enviable mantle of my fifth favourite historical figure of the last decade of podcasting? While I disprove of his abandonment of Johann de Witt to the Dutch mob, I admire his tenacity and bravery in standing up to the Anglo-French invasion. And while I lament the restrictions he inflicted upon Irish Catholics especially, I do respect his vision for a regime which could only be safe if those dastardly Catholics were subdued. I understand it, in other words, because it was something that was very common at the time. William was no different from his contemporaries in this sense, where religious persuasion was tied to loyalty to the regime. It would be somewhat unjust to begrudge him for that, though I don't have to like him for it. I certainly find it easier to root for William than for James II, who would have sold his own mother to cling on to the three crowns. Much like his French rival, William's role in the wars that characterised his life and times tend to overshadow his personality, but... There's no doubting his legacy. Acting as a kind of stopgap between the Stuarts and Hanoverians, William also served as the watershed moment when Britain surpassed the Dutch on the European stage. He's really too important to ignore, and too dynamic a figure for me to detest. Instead, I recognise his achievements and conclude that for his bravery, his ambition, his vision and his tenacity, William of Orange takes the place of my fifth favourite historical figure of the last decade. Number 4. Frederick the Great, King of Prussia, seen in our Poland Is Not Yet Lost and Seven Years' War series. Frederick II, or Frederick the Great of Prussia, 
always struck me as a kind of prototypical Empire Total War player. Picture the scene. You begin the game with an army, you build that army up, you launch a war against your neighbour with the intention of taking away their lands by force. In Empire Total War, this is a relatively easy task, but in 1740, when Frederick tried it and tried to seize Silesia by force, he established a precedent which was to characterise Europe and the German people for the next century. Frederick's subsequent victory presented an important question. Which state were the German people supposed to look to? Should it be the Austrians, or should it be the Prussians? But what was Prussia, and who were the Prussians? By Frederick's time, Prussia was a convenient place, because it enabled him to style his regime not merely as an elector of Brandenburg, but as a king. It was an example first set by Frederick's grandfather, Frederick I, when in 1701 Frederick I declared himself king in Prussia, and had a crown placed on his head in a lavish ceremony. Why king in and not king of Prussia? The distinction was important because the Holy Roman Empire would allow no monarchs to suddenly pop up out of nowhere. Fortunately, East Prussia was outside the jurisdiction of the Holy Roman Empire, having originally been a Polish fief. But still, to be a king of Prussia would have meant that Frederick I was a king within the empire, something which could not be allowed. A king in Prussia implied that he was only a monarch once he left the empire's lands and arrived in his barren eastern kingdom. So, in return for concessions from the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick I accepted the awkward compromise on the expectation that in the future his successors would build upon it. And this they did. Frederick I's son, Frederick William, created an army without parallel in Europe, establishing a reputation as a harsh taskmaster and unrestrained fanboy of all things military. Frederick William's son, our Frederick the Great, felt the worst aspects of his father's character, losing friends and lovers to his wrath and coming close to fleeing Berlin altogether. Yet, when his father died, the learned, well-read, multicultured Frederick II surprised everyone. Perhaps his subjects expected his fondness for all things French, his penchant for philosophy, and his love of the flute to translate into a peaceful, even weak-willed reign. They were to be surprised and perhaps disappointed, but certainly also awed, as Frederick directed the army that his father had built towards a new mission, the invasion of the Austrian province of Silesia. Having agreed to do the exact opposite only recently and respect the realm and regime of Empress Maria Theresa, Frederick took the Austrians by surprise and effectively seized Silesia for Prussia for good. The War of the Austrian Succession followed, and for the next eight years, Silesia was Frederick's prize and Maria Theresa's obsession. Frederick may have expected the Austrians to calm down a little bit when the peace was signed in 1748, but Maria Theresa instead bided her time. Faced with a coalition of France, Austria and Russia by 1756, Frederick felt he had no choice but to launch a preemptive strike against the Austrians that same year. Initially, the war went well for Frederick, but then the numbers game was too much, and his realm seemed on the brink of collapse and partition. In a moment that must win awards for timeliness and questions of what if, Empress Elizabeth of Russia died, and she was succeeded by Tsar Peter III, who can most kindly be described as a complete fanboy of everything Frederick and Prussian. The ascendancy of the German-born Tsar Peter III to the Russian throne proved the difference. 
Frederick was able to defeat his enemies in detail and conclude a peace with these seething Austrians in 1763. Frederick the Great had done it again. Unlike the example set by Louis XIV, though, Frederick spent the last 20 years of his reign not warring against his neighbours, but scheming tactically against them. He directed these schemes against the softest and greatest target in sight, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and by 1772, Frederick managed to rally his former enemies to his side and engage in the first partition of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. For Frederick, the first was undoubtedly the sweetest of these partitions, as he acquired West Prussia, linking his scattered domains together. Practically, Frederick shed the old niceties and dispensed with his king-in-Prussia moniker. Had he not linked the two Prussias together? This surely distinguished him as the king of Prussia after all. The Austrians could protest, but they did nothing, having helped themselves to Polish land at the same time. The stage was set for future partitions of poor Poland, but more importantly was Prussia's newfound status as one of the great powers, surrounded by great Austrian and Russian empresses and bolstered by Commonwealth land. Frederick didn't merely win battles, he also massively expanded Prussian territory and effectively recast himself not as the mere elector of Brandenburg, but as a king of Prussia, confusing generations of historians since. Henceforth, Frederick's successors would hone in on their regal title, especially when Napoleon abolished the Holy Roman Empire 20 years after Frederick the Great's death. The kings of Prussia now slotted in perfectly with the newly crowned kings of Saxony and Bavaria. The Prussia that Frederick left behind might have been battered by Napoleon, but it was very fortunate at the peace table in 1815, and managed to essentially gobble up the former French vassal, the Kingdom of Westphalia. This granted Berlin greater influence and power along the Rhine. These great expansions of power and territory may seem somewhat inevitable, but there was nothing inevitable about Frederick's achievements. His successes were never free from cost or controversy, but it was within this struggle that he acquired the moniker of the Great, in an era when greats towered all around him. So, what entitles Frederick the Great to the position of my fourth favourite historical figure of the last decade? Well... Frederick's story is a fascinating one, an unlikely military genius who catapulted the disparate, martial non-kingdom to the forefront of European power politics. But Frederick was so much more than this. He rallied against the usual stereotype of a Prussian king by engaging in artistic pursuits and philosophical discussions with Voltaire more enthusiastically than inspecting his soldiers on parade. His mind must have surged and bubbled with ideas and observations, and I only wish I could have picked his brains and, yeah, well, begged him to leave Poland alone. As rapacious as he was musical, as opportunistic as he was strategic, as cultured as he was misogynistic, Frederick the Great is still difficult to place in a box to this day, so I'm not going to try. Instead, I'm going to announce that because of his daring, his genius, and his reprehensible qualities all mixed up together, Frederick the Great pushes his way into the position of my fourth favourite historical figure, of the last decade. Number 3. Armand Duplessis, the Duke of Richelieu, Premier and Cardinal of France, seen in our Thirty Years' War series. In 1585, Armand Jean Duplessis was born. By 1607, he had been made a bishop, and by 1622, he acquired his cardinal's robes. 
a son of the church, it was in fact to the French king that this cardinal offered his greatest devotion. For his service, he served as Foreign Secretary of France from 1616 and became Chief Minister in 1624. Acquiring so many titles and so much power before his 40th birthday suggests that the man we know as Richelieu possessed an ambitious streak. But he was also a French patriot and understood even in 1624 that France would have a steep hill to climb if she was to contest the supremacy of the Habsburgs and emerge victorious. In a sense, we can view Richelieu's career as the prequel to Louis XIV's towering success. Without the cardinal laying the foundations for the centralisation and projection of French power, Louis XIV would never have enjoyed such a favourable platform to begin his rule. From an early stage, Richelieu was forced to confront France's domestic enemies, most notably the Huguenots. These Huguenots were far more powerful and threatening to the cohesion of the French state than their counterparts many decades later, at least Richelieu thought so. His own status as a cardinal may have influenced his judgment, but whatever the reasons, Richelieu helped direct the war against the French Protestants, which ended with the seizure of La Rochelle in 1628. The Huguenots dealt with, Richelieu turned his attention to domestic French politics, and with a little help from his king, Louis XIII, Richelieu outmaneuvered and defeated the court faction led by the king's mother and sponsored by the Spanish. A war in northern Italy was an ideal opportunity to fight the Habsburgs in a proxy conflict before the Great Showdown arrived. With a keen eye on the balance of power in the unfolding Thirty Years' War, Richelieu likely felt compelled to intervene when the Habsburgs defeated the Swedish-German army and Nordlingen in 1634, which we literally just covered in our Thirty Years' War series if you want to have a listen to that. The following year, France made its declarations against the Habsburgs. The Cold War had officially become hot, and for the first time in a generation, France and Spain were at one another's throats. Richelieu couldn't have known it, but the war was to outlast his own life and characterise the early life experience of Louis XIV. Making the French entry into the Thirty Years' War official may have been something of a relief, but initial signs suggested that Richelieu had overplayed his hand and underestimated his foe. The Spanish invaded from several directions, reaching within a few miles of Paris in 1637. These shocks proved the final gasp of a Spanish war effort that had limped on for decades. Richelieu solidified the diplomatic bonds with the Swedes and Dutch that had been made during peacetime, and France prepared to endure the second half of the Thirty Years' War as part of a triple alliance. Among these three allied powers... Only the French fought the Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburg dynasty at the same time, and Paris essentially served as the anchor of the anti-Habsburg cause. Facing revolution in Portugal and Catalonia in 1640, then losing their military edge during the Battle of Rocroi in 1643, it would have been little surprise to see the Austrian Habsburgs tap out and make peace with France in 1648. Now left with just Spain to contend with, the two sides battered one another for another decade, until an exhausted Spain conceded its position atop the European food chain to France in 1659, just in time for Louis XIV to take advantage. So Richelieu's performance in the Thirty Years' of War was clearly impressive, but of greatest interest to me was his diplomatic skill in arranging a wide list of states and rulers to fight against the Habsburgs until France was ready. Most notably, this took the form of the Dutch rebellion against Spain, which the French generously and consistently supported. 
Then, in 1631, Gustavus Adolphus secured a commitment of subsidies from the French king. And this was not the first time Richelieu had worked to ensure Sweden would be in a position to challenge the Habsburgs. He had helped mediate a truce between Sweden and Poland in 1629, with the express intention of freeing up the Swedes to attack the Holy Roman Emperor in the rear. It was a danger predicted by Wallenstein, but apparently ignored by Emperor Ferdinand until it was too late. Richelieu's handiwork paid off, and after Breitenfeld, the Habsburgs would never possess such leverage or power in the empire again. After Gustavus's death and the collapse of the anti-Habsburg position, though, Richelieu didn't hesitate and proved that the showdown with the Habsburgs had been his intention all along, with his transformative declarations of war. So, what entitles Richelieu to the position of my third favourite historical figure of the last decade? And what entitles him to have a Patreon tier and a mug dedicated just to him? Well, with Richelieu, it's very simple. I admire his diplomatic skill and his knack for recognising an opportunity. He had few scruples about who his allies would be. All he knew was that the Habsburgs had to be defeated, and to do so, France would need allies. The Calvinist Dutch and Lutheran Swedes may have appeared unlikely bedfellows for a French Catholic cardinal, but Richelieu was realistic enough to see the bigger picture and place power politics above questions of religion. It was a vital decision and a vital policy shift, really. Richelieu's realism, accompanied by a keen tactical mind and bolstered by diplomatic finesse, enabled France to rise from the ashes of its ruinous religious wars and surpass its Spanish rival. For his skill in diplomacy, for his fascinating schemes and for pulling off those red robes like nobody else, Richelieu gets his face on a WDF mug, but he also nabs the position of my third favourite historical figure of the last decade. Number 2. Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden, seen in our 30 Years War series. Like so many on this list, Gustavus Adolphus is known for one thing, depending on who you talk to of course, but generally, and this thing is fighting in the Thirty Years' War, achieving a triumphant victory and shocking the world with his genius by kind of coming out of nowhere. Again, like so many on this list, Gustavus Adolphus is known for this achievement, but his biography is even more fascinating when you dig into it. We have to start with Gustavus's origins story, the war that his father began against Sigismund III, who was Gustavus's cousin. Gustavus was a five-year-old boy when his father Charles usurped Sigismund and forced his Catholic Polish nephew back to Warsaw in 1599. Sigismund vowed revenge, but try as he might, Uncle Charles held firm, then crowned himself King Charles IX of Sweden. It was this antagonism that fueled the Swedish-Polish rivalry, a standoff that infected other European wars and culminated with the deluges of the 1650s. Yet, at the same time, this conflict with his Polish cousin gave Gustavus the chance to shine, because it forced him onto the battlefield, or into the siege works, or to launch an invasion of his cousin's land. And Gustavus was out for land grabs, particularly valuable ports that would increase Sweden's influence and power in the Baltic Sea. Sigismund hoped to reduce Gustavus's power base and bleed him dry, before returning to Stockholm in triumph when the usurper's son exhausted himself. Sigismund probably thought he stood a good chance, as did his nobles, the Schlachter. The Commonwealth boasted ten times the population of Sweden, and its armies had established a fearsome reputation following a 16th century golden age. 
Under Sigismund's rule, few could deny that Poland had reached new heights of power, enhanced by the turmoil in Russia, known as the Time of Troubles. Translated for King Sigismund of Poland, this meant open season, and as the Russians scrambled to form any kind of government, or find any kind of new czar, Polish armies invaded and seized Moscow twice. The second time, they succeeded so much that they placed Sigismund's son, Vladislav, on the Russian throne, and Sigismund demanded that all friends of Poland refer to his son as the King of Poland, Tsar of Russia, and of course, King of Sweden. In the 1610 Battle of Klusino, Polish hussars routed the Russians and Vladislav was proclaimed Tsar, whereupon he ruled in Moscow for two years. Facing this existential threat to his realm, King Charles IX had his hands full, but only enjoyed absolute power for a decade before his regime ended. Gustavus would have been right to fear the return of Sigismund's supporters now that the usurper was dead, but Sigismund seemed to have bitten off more than he could chew. He agreed a truce with the new king in 1611 and focused on his Russian war. Sigismund was fairly confident that Gustavus Adolphus would be busy. After all, it wasn't just the Poles that had it out for Sweden. Denmark was also on the lookout for revenge. Not only were the Danes empowered under King Christian IV, who lived through the whole duration of the Thirty Years' War, but those same Danes enjoyed great riches from their control over the sound tolls which people had to pay before getting into the Baltic Sea. In response to some claims on Norwegian land that King Charles made before his death, thanks for that legacy, Dad, Denmark made war on Sweden in April 1611. Ignoring Gustavus's requests for peace, and perhaps sensing weakness, the Danes won the war and levied a large indemnity upon the Swedes, but acquired no new lands from their former vassal. The pill was a bitter one to swallow, but after a few years, Gustavus was ready to get back at his Polish cousin once again. What followed were about 15 years of war that only ended, even then, for a 20 years truce in 1629, but let's look at these years in a bit more detail now. So the next war between the Polish and Swedish kings began in 1616 and lasted barely a year, but this was followed by another conflict in 1621. Having tested the waters with his fleet, this time Gustavus was out to conquer Polish lands, particularly in the modern Baltic states. That coastline contained several rich ports, which could transform the fortunes of a largely poor and underdeveloped Swedish kingdom. With his forces by now repelled from Russia and an Ottoman war to contend with, Sigismund's reign was looking less shiny than it had done 20 years before, and his nobles had become exhausted with these enemies nibbling away at Polish power. By 1621, they urged their king to make a truce with Sweden, and when he didn't listen, the Lithuanians signed it for him. Enraged and building a fleet with the help of Spain, King Sigismund prepared his forces for attack, ignoring pleas from his nobles, until a rebellion against Sigismund in Lithuania provided Gustavus with a fresh opportunity. And so it begins that, for virtually the entirety of the 1620s, with some brief intervals of peace, the Polish-Swedish wars continued. And yes, in case you're wondering, I really am restraining myself here, and yes, this whole era deserves a film or at least its own book. The wars proved lucrative for Sweden, not just because she gained Livonia and several Prussian port tolls from the peace, but also because of what the war taught the young king. Interestingly, one of the reasons his nobles urged Sigismund to make peace was from the urgent need to reform the Polish army. 
Gustavus had a similar problem, but he had rarely sat still, whereas Sigismund couldn't penetrate the winged hussar culture of the nobles. As is often the case when a weaker power is forced to combat the stronger for extended periods, see, for example, the Dutch fighting the Spanish, Gustavus refined and honed his military theories, with the aim of making the very most of what he had at his disposal. And for Gustavus, this meant two changes above all would have to be made to the army, first in the infantry, then in the artillery. I'll spare you too much of the details here, but check out 17th century warfare series for more. Suffice to say, by the time Richelieu mediated that peace between Poland and Sweden in 1629, Gustavus had brought his army to the peak of professionalism, and they fought with a new version of Maurice of Orange's countermarch. It was a neat little innovation known as Fire by Rank, and it was complemented by the redesign of the Swedish artillery, which now came in smaller, more manageable calibers that could be dispersed among the infantry. With so much firepower, the Swedes had made mincemeat of charging Polish columns, and now Gustavus intended to turn this never-before-seen strategy towards the Empire. Like with his Polish wars, Gustavus's aims were very similar. Acquire territory, money, and glory. Europe no longer called him usurper, but they were about to call him a legend. If you've been following our 30 Years War series, you know what happened next. See the recent spate of 30 Years War episodes to learn more of Gustavus's incredible victory at Breitenfeld in 1631, followed by his death in battle the following year. Gustavus the man may have perished, but Gustavus the legend lived on, both in myth and in the form of the Swedish Empire which dominated the Baltic for the rest of the 17th century. It was certainly a better legacy to leave his people than that left by his father. That said, we shouldn't mistake Gustavus for an unbeatable genius. He had to learn his lessons, and in these bitter experiences he created a military machine which all other European powers soon strove to emulate. Breitenfeld signalled the beginning of the end of the Tertio Pikeman Square, to be replaced with the lines of infantry firing in coordinated rhythm and drill that is so famously seen in the 18th century. You could argue that Gustavus changed the face of early modern warfare as well as the map of Europe. You could, and you'd be right. Considering these achievements, not to mention the ripples he created in the Thirty Years' War itself, it should be no surprise that Gustavus Adolphus fire by ranks his way into the position of my second favourite historical figure of the last decade of history podcasting. And number one, Charles II, King of Britain. I'm only joking, guys. It Bismarck. It's Bismarck, okay? Who else could it be other than the man we opened When Diplomacy Fails with ten years ago? Even though I since remastered that episode, you'll have to believe me when I say you could hear me geeking out throughout it. Otto Edward Leopold, Prince of Bismarck, Count of Bismarck, Schoenhausen, Duke of Lundberg, boasted a career almost as long as his titles. From 1862 till 1890, Bismarck directed the foreign and state policy first of Prussia, and then, following three successful wars, of all of Germany. His arrival on the scene had little to do with timeliness, though he did take advantage of the trend of German nationalism that was capturing hearts and minds. Instead, Bismarck altered the future of the German people and the history of our world in the process by his own forceful ambition, his intelligence, and his immense energy. Not bad for a guy who didn't decide what he was going to do with his life until he was 32. But Bismarck was like that, a man of immense appetite, both for power and for food, 
yet uncertain, so it would seem, about what it was all for. To what end, asked the historian Edward Crankshaw, and it remains a worthwhile question. Having enraptured his peers, then his fellow Germans, and then the European continent, we could be forgiven for thinking this came as the result of some grand plan. But no, as far as we can tell, historians debate this of course, Bismarck sought power for its own sake, and in return for this power, he fulfilled a role which frequently made him ill, stress him out to no end, and caused great eruptions of rage to fly from his large frame. By this stage, if you've listened to my episodes and not encountered my semi-obsession with the Iron Chancellor, then yeah, you really should get that looked at. I do feel like in the last decade I've barely shut up about him. I'm so fascinated because of what Otto did and because of how he did it. He ruled over a German national and foreign policy, yes, but this reign only came after a succession of military triumphs, which themselves only came after a long period as ambassador to Russia and also to the German Federation. It was as though the young Bismarck decided that he had rambled around his estates and complained of boredom long enough, and decided to make up for lost time when his appointment to the land tag was made official in 1847. Throughout the 1850s, Bismarck was invariably a representative in the German parliament in Frankfurt, an ambassador to France, and ambassador to Russia. But when King Wilhelm of Prussia found that he couldn't pass his military budget, the no-nonsense Bismarck received the summons he'd been waiting for. That, of course, is the Sparknotes version. If you want to know more, look for Bismarck Rise, a series we released in spring 2020, because that covers Bismarck's life and times up to 1864 in fabulous detail. So if you're just here, make sure you track that down. Trust me, you're going to enjoy it. We should take a moment to appreciate Bismarck's relationship with his king. Without his frequent tantrums, threats to resign, or complaints of illness that wore his monarch down, Bismarck may never have been given such free reign over German policy, especially since, you know, the king was supposed to have complete control over that sort of thing. At every step of his legendary career, Bismarck bullied and cajoled Wilhelm into seeing things his way. No interest in making war on Denmark? Bismarck whipped Wilhelm into a frenzy until he eventually came to see the Schleswig-Holstein situation as an insult to his reign. No problem with the Austrians and actually being on pretty good terms with them? Well, Bismarck went on and on about the intolerable treatment Vienna had given to Berlin so regularly that Wilhelm was eventually forced to agree with him. Even in Bismarck's crowning moment at the Palace of Versailles when the German Empire was proclaimed, King Wilhelm of Prussia sulked when he received the new imperial crown and was crowned Emperor of the Germans. As a Prussian traditionalist through and through, Wilhelm was determined to stress that this newfangled German crown would never replace his Prussian one. Once he united the Germans under the Prussian flag in 1871, Bismarck went from bullying his monarch to bullying his monarch and also pretty much all of Europe. Interestingly, having shattered the status quo and established his legend, Bismarck found that peacetime was a little bit less exciting. So instead of conquering foreign enemies, he focused on domestic ones, like socialists, Catholics and liberals, until the opposition had been terrified, intimidated or exhausted into silence. Then he tried his hand at international peacemaking, offering Berlin and his services as an honest broker to effect the Congress of Berlin in 1878, which saw a cameo from Disraeli and brought the Russo-Turkish War to an end. 
1885, the Berlin Conference gave Bismarck another chance to shine on the world stage as he ensured Germany's place in the sun and Africa was stripped bare by the European powers. All the while, of course, Bismarck engineered European alliances specifically to keep Germany secure and France isolated, a tactic which technically worked but actually failed in several other respects. Perhaps Bismarck's greatest failure was his inability to leave any lasting political party or movement behind in his place to carry on his work. When his benefactor Wilhelm died in 1888 and the late emperor's proudly independent grandson eventually took over, the tables were infamously turned and the pilot was dropped, as that political cartoon depicted. A bitter Bismarck went into retirement in 1890 and lived long enough to see the French and Russians reconcile in a hint of what was to come. Yet we shouldn't imagine that everything Bismarck touched turned to gold, although he might claim it did. Although his various alliances with Austria, Russia and Italy worked in the short term, not even Bismarck could keep Vienna and St. Petersburg apart in their quest for influence in the Balkans. The Reinsurance Treaty of 1887 and the Triple Alliance itself were all meant to insulate Germany from future crises, but the problem with these complicated arrangements was that only Bismarck seemed to understand them. Perhaps nobody dared to ask this fearsome statesman how it all worked. Perhaps Bismarck had been the only one really capable of delaying the Franco-Russian reproachment, and the mediocrities that replaced him never had a chance. Either way, Bismarck's departure was the end of an era, an era which can fairly be called the Age of Bismarck. So, what entitles Otto von Bismarck to claim such a privileged position as my favourite historical figure of the last decade of history podcasting? Well, simply put, Bismarck was what I had in mind when I first conceived of this podcast. It was his life's work, his diplomacy, that first captured my imagination in school. It was Bismarck who made me realise just how fascinating I find all this diplomacy, and how fun it would be to learn more. Bismarck did what he did to accumulate as much power in his hands as possible, and he did so in such a way as to almost appear politically neutral. There was no Bismarck party because Bismarck was a party of one. Having pulled himself to his position by sheer force of will, he was determined to reap the benefits and share them with no one. Not his family, not his countrymen, and certainly not his emperor. Bismarck remains something of an enigma, at least for now. Perhaps in time when we launch our Age of Bismarck series, some of these mysteries will fade. But until then, I'm happy to announce, and I'm sure you're not that surprised that I am announcing it, that Bismarck is my favourite historical figure from the last decade of history podcasting. So, thanks for listening. I hope you found this entertaining and even a bit instructive. For a trip down memory lane, or to explore more of when diplomacy fails if you haven't already, why not try some of the series that featured figures I mentioned here? Where should you start, you may ask? Well, that history friend is up to you. Not even Bismarck can make that choice for you. So were there some history figures you feel I should have included? Were there some that didn't make the cut but that you really, really love? Let's continue the discussion in the Facebook group, which is When Diplomacy Fails It's Facebook group, or on Twitter, at WDF Podcast. You can find me there, and I hope to talk to you soon. But until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all. Soon. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.